0: Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a series titled Elijah. We're learning about an ordinary man with extraordinary faith who stood up in a time of darkness. Thanks for joining us today. Well, today we come to the last week in our summer teaching series called Elijah. And we've been learning, if you're following in your notes, Elijah is an ordinary man with extraordinary faith. And what I've loved learning, because what what has become evident to me over these 10 weeks is that Elijah's ordinary faith is not measured by these incredible things that he does for God. It's not measured by the mountaintop experiences. I would now define Elijah's extraordinary faith as waking up every day, listening to God's voice and being obedient to what God asked him to do, even when it doesn't make sense, even when it's hard. It's the everyday faith that's extraordinary. Elijah isn't this superhero. He's a faithful follower of the one true God. And if you're following your notes, God still uses ordinary people to accomplish his purposes, He still uses ordinary people. I love this quote from a pastor in North Carolina named J.D. Greer. He says, God is not looking for superhuman people with great talents to use. He's looking for ordinary people with unconditional surrender and extraordinary confidence in him. Elijah was an ordinary person with extraordinary faith and God still uses ordinary people to accomplish his purposes. I was able to be part of a funeral yesterday and we stood in this room of a very ordinary woman who had extraordinary faith and her extraordinary faith led her to serve others in ways that I have not witnessed before. Serving the homeless and knowing every homeless person by name what their favorite food was, meal planning to prepare their favorite food so she could take that to them and show them the dignity and respect that they deserve. That's extraordinary faith, waking up every day, listening to God. We can all participate in that way. Last week, Luke shared how Elijah's spirit was passed on to his apprentice, Elisha, and Elisha continued the prophetic ministry of Elijah. But Elijah's story doesn't end with Elisha. His life had a ripple effect a hundred, hundreds of years later. And that's what happens to people, ordinary people with extraordinary faith. Their life has this ripple effect that goes on and on. And Elijah's ripple effect goes on for hundreds of years past Elisha that continues to this day. And to look at that ripple effect, we're going to flip to a few different places in the Bible. So I want to invite you to have a Bible open in front of you so you can follow along. And if you don't have a Bible, we have black Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. We're going to start in the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4 can be found on page 780 of those black Bibles. As you're making your way there, one of the things I love about what we're going to do today to see where Elijah appears in different places is that we get a glimpse of how amazing God's word is, right? 66 books written over four, by 40 authors over 1,500 years on three continents in three languages, all telling one story, all pointing to Jesus. So today we begin in the book of Malachi. And what we need to know about Malachi is he lived about 400 years after Elijah was taken up to heaven. And at the time of Malachi, we still see this. We still see a people, God's people, who are following after false gods. They weren't committed to God fully. They wanted to find their fulfillment and satisfaction outside of a relationship with God. And Malachi warns of the Lord's judgment against the people who have turned from him. So Malachi chapter four, verse one begins. You can follow in your Bibles or on your devices. Malachi four, one says, the Lord of heaven's armies says, the day of judgment is coming, burning like a furnace. On that day, the arrogant and the wicked will be burned up like straw. They will be consumed, roots, branches, and all. And if you're following on your notes, we we need to know that Elijah and the prophets primarily had a message of judgment. They warned God's people to leave their false gods and follow and obey the commands of the one true God. They warned people and warned people and warned people. And we don't talk about this a lot. And to be honest, judgment and hell are kind of taboo subjects today people struggle with this idea of god's justice and his judgment but i think the reason we don't like to think about the judgment of god because is because a truth often ignored is that god is not indifferent to sin he's not indifferent to sin and we as sinners are all under god's judgment without jesus we like this idea right of god being loving and tolerant and compassionate but we struggle with God being a God of justice and judgment and making a final determination that one of his prized creations will spend eternity separated from him forever. We struggle with that. But God's justice and his love have to go together. You can't have a God of love without God also being fully just, right? If God was just a a God of judgment... He would have never sent his son to die on a cross for the forgiveness of our sin. He would just left us in our own sin. And if God was only a God who loved, it'd be chaos. Anybody could do anything they wanted to do without any consequences and there would be no justice. No justice for those who oppressed or persecuted. And I think what we think is we think love means we can just do anything we want, anytime we want, and it's okay to do that, but that's not love. I want you to think about this for all the parents and teachers with school administrators with school coming back up. Let's just take this example of putting 25 kindergartners in a room together with no supervision. It'd be loving, right? They'd do whatever they wanted to do anytime they wanted to do it. I think for a while, they would think it's great. But it would be complete chaos. They need supervision. They need discipline. They need consequences. They need a teacher or an administrator who is loving and just. We want that and we need that. God has to be loving and just at the same time. God is a God of judgment and love. And if you're following in your notes, this is why in the midst of judgment, we see God's grace. There's grace there. He's patient. He gives his people time and time again to return throughout the entire Old Testament. We see the grace of God shining through. The prophets gave warnings in order to give people opportunities to turn from the future judgment. And over and over, God would say things like, if you return to me, I'll heal you. If you return to me, I will protect you. If you return to me, I will be your God and you will be my people. There is grace in the midst of judgment. So it's no surprise that after the judgment that's described in verse 1, In Malachi chapter four, verse two, we read this. And I wanna invite you to read this with me on the screen. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. And you will go free, leaping with joy like calves let out to pasture. Right, right? Malachi's saying, judgment's coming, But for those who fear God, and that word also means to revere or to honor him, judgment is coming. But before the day of judgment, the son of righteousness, who is Jesus, is coming. And he will bring healing and freedom and joy. And this is the good news that we proclaim. God fulfilled this promise. It's the greatest promise he fulfilled. That while we were still sinners, he sent his one and only son to die the death we deserved and rise from the dead to give us resurrection life that we could never earn. And when we place our trust in what Jesus accomplished on the cross, our sins are forgiven and our relationship with God is restored and we move from death to life, both now and forever. Judgment filled with grace. So if you're here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I'm so thankful you're here. I really am. I'm so thankful you're here. But it would be unloving of me to tell you that you're okay. There is a judgment day coming. And if you are depending on yourself and your own good deeds to be proclaimed good or right, you will be disappointed because there's nothing you can do in your own power to be made right with God again. I'm gonna come back to this in just a few minutes and I'm gonna invite you to follow Jesus and how to do that. But please know, God doesn't want anyone to perish. He doesn't want any of his children to perish, but for everyone to come to repentance. So we're gonna come back to this in just a few minutes. So we're told, A judgment is coming for those who do not follow God. But there's a day of healing and freedom and joy awaiting those who do follow him. And then the Old Testament ends with these words. Would you read the first gray box on your notes with me? Look, I am sending you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives. Here's a paraphrase of that. When you see Elijah again, the Old Testament ends, when you see Elijah again, you'll know the son of righteousness, Jesus, is on his way. And the days are getting closer to judgment day. It's like God finishes the whole Old Testament, thousands of years with these words, look for Elijah, look for Elijah. So the right, the this is like going to the Fox Theater in St. Louis Act one finishes. The curtain drops, the house goes dark, and you wait for the lights to come back up to signal intermission before the second act begins, but the lights don't come back up. And you wait, and you wait, and you wait. In fact, I want you to flip one page over in your Bibles. It's probably a blank page. You might even want to write four 100 years of silence on that page. It's the gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. 400 years, generation after generation, anticipating Elijah's return. Because that means God is getting ready to set things in motion to make the world right again. Elijah's return means the kingdom of God is about to break into the kingdom of the world. 400 years. And then in 5 BC in Jerusalem, there's a priest named Zechariah and he approached the holy place in the temple during his time to serve in Jerusalem. And while he's serving, an angel appeared to him. In Luke 1, you can flip to Luke 1 if you want. Matthew, Mark, Luke, Luke 1, the silence of 400 years is broken with these words. You can follow in your Bibles or on the screen. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you are to call him John. John. He will be a joy and a delight to you and many will rejoice because of his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of who? Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. The 400 years of silence is broken by the announcement that Elijah is returning. And every Jewish person would know that it's almost time for the son of righteousness, the savior, the Messiah to appear. I mean, can you imagine what they must have been thinking? I have to think it's like Christmas for kids, right? They, I don't know if your family's like mine, but the Christmas list for this year began in the spring. And then they have to wait and wait and wait. And as Christmas gets closer, the anticipation gets, gets heightened, and they can hardly contain themselves. I imagine that's what these Jewish people are thinking right now. It's, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. Elijah's coming. One point of clarification before we go on. Re- remember the last words of the Old Testament, look for Elijah. And then you get 400 years of silence broken by this prophecy. And if you remember last week, Elijah was, didn't die. He was taken up to heaven. And so the Jewish people thought, and they still do think that Elijah will actually physically return to walk among the people again. So they don't believe John the Baptist was Elijah, which leads them to not accept Jesus as God's son and savior. But Elijah is not going to return to earth in bodily form. That's reincarnation. What the angel told Zechariah is that his son John would have the spirit and power of Elijah. And he would prepare the way for the Lord. And that's exactly who John the Baptist is. Jesus even affirms the identity of John the Baptist as the last prophet. In Matthew 11, Jesus was telling others about John and he said this, you can see this on the screen. It says, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, he's the last one. And if you're willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. The one who has ears. Let him hear. So if you're following in your notes, John the Baptist is the last prophet who came in the spirit and power of Elijah to prepare the way for Jesus. He's Elijah that came. And this spirit and power, what that means is they share a zeal for the Lord. They, they both want to see God's people repent and turn back to him instead of facing judgment. If you're following your notes, Elijah and John had the same mission. The same mission to call God's people to turn back. Same mission, but, but catch this. They used different words. They used a different tone. They used a different style of communication to accomplish those purposes. So if you're following in your notes, Elijah led with judgment. John led with grace. And the difference in their message is given away in John's name. His name means the Lord is gracious. And whereas Elijah's message was primarily a message of judgment with hope and with grace, John's message is a message of grace. To be sure, John speaks of judgment, but his message is this invitation into God's grace. When we meet John, he's standing in the Jordan River, he's wearing his camel uh, hair coat, he's preaching repentance and baptizing people. Interestingly enough, this is believed to be the exact same place that Elijah was taken up in the whirlwind, further punctuating the, the fact that John came in the spirit and power of Elijah. And in Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, we're told the words John used were these. These can be found in the second gray box. Would you read these with me full voice? It says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the same message Jesus began his ministry with. In Mark chapter 1, we can read this. These are the words of Jesus in Mark chapter 1 15. The time has come, Jesus said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. I imagine when many of us hear that word repent, it's not a good word, right? Wait, it's maybe a trigger word that triggers despair or guilt or shame. Or some of us hear that word and we start thinking like, I better get myself together. But repent is actually this beautiful word that leads to healing, freedom, and joy. It leads to refreshing and restoration. And I'm praying that in a few minutes when we're done talking about this word, we'll have a better idea of what is meant by this message given by the spirit of Elijah through John the Baptist and then given by Jesus. The, the word we translate as repent in the New Testament is the Greek word metanoia. And it means if you're following on your notes to have a change of mind have a change of mind. It, it is a radical change of direction in response to God's grace. It is a change of direction. It, it means to change our mind, which leads to a change in behavior. Repenting is, is this decision that we, when we humble ourselves, it requires humility. And we humble ourselves and we see reality as God sees it. It means we, we name, we confess where our lives don't line up with God's word and the way of Jesus. And then it involves an intentional decision with God's help to change the course that we're running. Repentance is a gift from God. It's a gift from God. But the reason we don't see repentance as a gift, but we actually think of it as a punishment, is because we get repentance wrong. We have some wrong ideas about it. And I want to share with you how I've gotten repentance wrong. And perhaps you can identify with what, some of what I'm going to say. The first way, if you're following in your notes, that we get repentance wrong is we feel really bad. We feel really bad. I want to be careful here because we should feel bad about our sin. Our sin is more serious than we ever want to think it is. It destroys lies. It separates us from God and one another. But here's what just feeling bad can do. It becomes a way to compensate for our badness, right? If I just feel bad enough about myself, then maybe God will accept me. The only problem with that is that remorse isn't repentance because I can feel bad about doing something and keep on doing it. It's not changing direction, right? I parented this way for years. I would mess up in parenting. I would say something that was out of line or didn't sound like Jesus, and then I would beat myself up. And there was some part of me, I don't know if you can relate to this, there was some part of me that it felt good to beat myself up because if I could just feel bad enough, then maybe everything would be okay. And it wasn't until I talked with a counselor about this and talked through how to stop beating myself up and instead repent and change direction. I remember this counselor asking, do you really want to make changes or or do you just want to keep doing the same thing and getting the same results? And what they were asking is, do you want to repent? Because that's how God can change you. It's not by feeling bad about yourself. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German theologian, has this great quote that illustrates the difference between remorse and repentance. He says this, it's a super simple quote. If you board the wrong train, it's no use running along the corridor in the other direction. Super simple, right? I was in Washington, D.C. a few weeks ago. It's one of my favorite cities. We use the metro quite a bit. And if I got on our metro stop at Eastern Market to go to the National Mall, but instead I headed east toward Landover, Maryland, rather than going west to the Smithsonian, it would do me no good to run through the cars headed toward Smithsonian. I would need to get off the train, change platforms, and go an entirely different direction. That's what repentance is. Remorse, if you're following in your notes, repentance is not just remorse. It is a change of direction. And a second way that I've gotten repentance wrong and not seen it as a gift it is by believing that repentance means, if you're following in your notes, promising to do better or try harder. Promising to better. I mean, we've all done this. We've all done this. I just need to try harder to forgive this person. I just, I need to try harder to think of this person in a different way. I promise I'm never going out on another Friday night and waking up feeling like this on Saturday. I promise I'm just gonna try harder not to look at pornography anymore. I'll just try harder. And it just doesn't work. To go back to my example of parenting, the cycle that I would find myself in is I'd feel really bad about myself and then I would promise to do better and I would try in my own power to be better. And when I failed again, I'd go back to beating myself up and feeling bad. Can you see the unhealthy cycle that we get in? Uh, Pastor and Professor Dallas Willard referred to this. I, I, I love what he says. This is the gospel of sin management. He said, the tragedy of trying to fight and fix our sin is that we get caught in a never-ending cycle of behavior management bondage. When we don't see repentance as a gift, this is the destruction that can happen. I wanna put a picture on the screen for you. This is what we find happening. We try harder and then we get tired because it's exhausting. And then we quit and give up. And then we are guilt-ridden and we feel bad about ourselves And then we go right back into trying harder and promising to be better. And friends, I just want to tell you, if willpower and behavior management were the path to freedom, healing, and joy, then the cross of Jesus wouldn't have been necessary. If you're here and you're exhausted from trying to be better and try harder to earn God's forgiveness, there's a better way. And the better way is repenting. It's repenting by coming to God in humility. And I'll say it again, naming reality and where we've messed up. And it's in that naming reality where God meets us because he meets us where we are. And then God can do the transforming work in our lives as we open our hands to him. The transforming work we could never do in our own power. So as we close, I wanna talk about two types of repentance. Saving repentance and ongoing repentance. First, let's talk about saving repentance. What what this means for those of you here or online that do not yet follow Jesus, I told you I would come back to this and invite you to follow Jesus. This is the first step into a relationship with him. You don't have to feel really bad about yourself, and you don't have to try harder to get yourself cleaned up. I want to tell you today, that's not how it works. God is waiting for you like a loving parent, waiting for a child to come home. Psalm 103 tells us in verse 8, just listen to these words about the Lord. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. And verse 13, as a father has compassion on his children... So the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. He is a loving father waiting for you to come home. Ernest Hemingway tells a story that set in Spain about a father who had a teenage son named Paco. Paco wanted to live his own life and control his own destiny. So he ran away to the capital city of Madrid to become a bullfighter. And his father was so desperate to reconcile with his son that he followed him to Madrid and he put an ad in the newspaper that read like this. This is all the ad said. Dear Paco, meet me in front of the Madrid newspaper office tomorrow at noon. All is forgiven. I love you. Hemingway then wrote, the next day at noon in front of the newspaper office, there were eight 100 people named Paco that showed up all looking for forgiveness. Friends, there are people in this room today looking for forgiveness. I believe that to my core. And today can be the day you experience repentance that saves. If you're following in your notes, repentance that saves is that you repent of your former way of life and you receive God's grace. Come home. God is saying, God is saying, all is forgiven. I love you. God is waiting for you. Come home. And at any point today, you can just say the words, God, I need you. I can't save myself. I believe your son, Jesus, died on the cross for the forgiveness of my sin and rose from the dead, defeating sin and death from this day on. I want to follow him. That's repentance that saves. You're invited into that today. And if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, I want to talk about ongoing repentance and begin to see that repentance is the ordinary, regular experience of every follower of Jesus. Because once we begin following Jesus, I don't know about you, but we don't stop sinning right? We we now have the Holy Spirit who lives in us, and we can say no to sin, but we're going to mess up every day. And ongoing repentance gives us the opportunity to review our day and discover where any area of our lives has gotten out of step with Jesus. I've shared this before, but the prayer book I use most days has this statement in it. Holy Spirit, search my heart, and reveal any areas of unconfessed sin. Acknowledge these to the Lord and thank him for his forgiveness. And I gotta tell you, it's amazing without fail when I ask the Holy Spirit that question. He is faithful to reveal something that I need to turn from, sometimes go and make right. I need to repent for a thought, a word, or an action. He prompts me to change course. I can't tell you, followers of Jesus, I can't tell you how important this is if you want to see growth in your faith. We cannot grow without ongoing repentance. It's a doorway into growing our faith. It's difficult to grow into the likeness of Jesus unless we're doing this. I appreciate what John Tyson, a pastor in New York City, said about ongoing repentance. If you're following in your notes, he said, ongoing repentance gives us access to a fresh encounter with the presence of God. That is the power of ongoing repentance when we see it as a gift. So as we seek to be people who give ourselves fully to Jesus and his mission, I wanna encourage you and challenge you to incorporate ongoing repentance into the time you spend each day with Jesus. And as we finish this series, let's be a people who confess and repent and walk in the healing and the freedom and the joy that Jesus invites us into. We can be ordinary people who live extraordinary lives by responding to the message of Elijah, the message of John the Baptist, and the message of Jesus. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information about our church or to get connected, please visit cherryhillsfamily.org or find us on Facebook. Thanks for joining us.